here you are. BPMs high, sweat dripping, body moving, tongue panting. You're working hard, real hard, and you're thirsty. You need vitamins, nutrients for peak performance and energy. And your plants do too. Aw, let me just look at the little guy. Water-soluble plant food from miracle Grow is full of essential nutrients. Just a little scoop into your watering can and boom, instant feeding and bigger, more beautiful plants. It's kind of like a sports drink for your plants. You may have to suffer from heat, but your plants do not. Thanks to you at home for joining me on this special Sunday night edition of Alex Wagner Tonight. It has been 48 hours since an attempted military rebellion in one of civilization's biggest nuclear powers, and the world is on edge. And to be honest, we are all kind of unsure what it all means. This has been one of the most confusing, dramatic moments in recent recent Russian history, and we are very much still finding out how this armed rebellion came together, what the U.S. knew about it, and what the fallout will be for Russia and Ukraine and, frankly, the rest of the globe. On Friday, the standoff began when the leader of a Russian private military group posted a series of recorded video and audio messages on Telegram, messages that undermined Russia's justification for war in Ukraine and called for a march for justice against the Russian military. The man who posted these messages, his name you have certainly heard a lot through the past two days, is Yevgeny Prigozhin. He is the leader of the Russian private mercenary army known as the Wagner Group, a group that has been on the front lines of Russia's war in Ukraine. Now, the Wagner mercenaries are known to be some of the most brutal forces fighting in Ukraine. They have recruited fighters in Russian prisons. They have staged violent executions. They are also heavily involved in Russia's other military interventions across Africa and the Middle East in places like Syria and the Central African Republic. The Wagner Group is not known to be a bunch of nice guys. On Saturday, Mr. Prigozhin led his forces out of Ukraine and into Russia, where they took control of the Russian city of Rostov-on-Don. And amazingly, the Russian citizens of that city didn't seem to mind. Civilians stood in line with Wagner Group mercenaries waiting for coffee, which is not something you see during most armed rebellions. People in that city continued to carry out everyday tasks like street sweeping as tanks rolled down their very own streets. The Wagner Group eventually took over a Russian military headquarters, and then they began to march toward the city of Moscow. President Putin went on Russian state TV to declare this uprising, this march, an armed mutiny. And he accused Prigozhin of treason. But then Vladimir Putin sort of disappeared. And nobody has seen him since. Wagner Group forces made it within 134 miles of Moscow when the situation shifted abruptly once again. Alexander Lukashenko, the authoritarian leader of Belarus, he announced that he had brokered a deal between Prigozhin's forces and Putin's government to end the standoff. The Wagner forces advancing on Moscow reversed course, and Prigozhin and his men evacuated the military headquarters in Rostov-on-Don, where they had been just getting coffee a few hours earlier. And a deal was reached to allow Prigozhin to flee to Belarus. Civilians cheered for Prigozhin and they shook his hand and they took selfies with him as he departed. But nobody has heard from Prigozhin since then either. 
In the middle of all of this, President Biden has been working the phone, speaking with the leaders of Germany and France and the UK and vowing continued support for Ukraine amid all this chaos. Ukrainian President Zelensky pointed to all of this as a sign of Russia's weakness amid Putin's ongoing invasion of his country. And Secretary of State Antony Blinken echoed that same sentiment in an interview on NBC's Meet the Press. Now what we've seen is um, Russia having to defend Moscow, its capital, against mercenaries of its own making. Uh, so in and of itself, that's extraordinary. And in so doing, um, we've also seen rise to the surface profound questions about the very premises for this Russian aggression against Ukraine that Prigozhin surfaced very publicly, as well as a direct challenge to, to Putin's authority. So I think we've seen more cracks emerge in the, the Russian facade. There are a lot of questions here. What is Putin's next move? How does this affect the war in Ukraine, where Wagner forces played a very key role? What happens to Yevgeny Prigozhin, and how long is he allowed to remain alive in exile? And also, now that someone's broken the seal, does anyone else want to try their hand at an armed rebellion? Joining us now is Ben Rhodes, former Deputy National Security Advisor to President Obama and an MSNBC contributor. Also with us is Masha Gessen, staff writer at The New Yorker and the author of Surviving Autocracy. Ben, I, <laughs> what just happened here? I mean, it has been a whirlwind weekend and I, it's very hard for someone like me and I think a lot of people to make sense of exactly where we are. Well, we are in new and uncharted territory. Yeah. Uh, the reality, though, Alex, is this has kind of been building for months. So the Wagner forces, up to 25,000 people under arms, they were on the front lines in the Ukrainian city of Bakhmut, grinding it out day after day in the most brutal fighting of the war. And Prigozhin increasingly was taking aim at the Russian military high command, mm -hmm. particularly the Minister of Defense, Shoigu. He was saying they were hanging out his forces to dry. They weren't providing them with ammunition. They weren't providing them with cover. And he was threatening all kinds of things towards the Russian military high command. Now, the way Putin has set up his regime is he's had these kind of competing corrupt fiefdoms. The military is corrupt. Prigozhin's corrupt. There are other warlords. There are provincial leaders. Uh, and what we have not seen thus far is somebody stand up from within that structure and take on the center of power of Vladimir Putin. And so what's happened in the last 48 hours is for the first time in Putin's 23 years of yeah. being the dominant force in Russian politics, you had someone essentially declare that the emperor has no clothes mm -hmm. and I'm going to take him on and I'm going to march with my forces. And the city of Rostov that he took over briefly, this is not a small city. It's over a million uh, people, but it's also the main logistics hub for the war in Ukraine. So he was also kind of paralyzing their capacity to run command and control from Moscow down into the war in Ukraine. And so now there's been a de-escalation. There's been this partial resolution for the time being. But I think everybody in Russia saw Vladimir Putin go on television and say, this guy is committing mutiny. He has to be detained. They were putting out threats. He was going to be thrown in prison. Just the fact that they even let Prigozhin for the time being off and into Belarus. Yeah. Uh, that's not what Putin told his own people he was going to do. Yeah. And so Russians are feeling the war coming home into their internal politics in a way that they haven't before. And I think now we know that Russia and its political stability is a part of the war in Ukraine. I just, I, as elementary as this may sound, though, Ben, you, you sound very definitive in believing this is directed at Putin. This is a, an attempt at Putin's ouster. Now, 
we're careful about the language yes. we use to describe this, right? We are not using the word coup. We're using the words military rebellion, armed rebellion, revolt, because to some people, it's still unclear whether this was directed specifically at Putin or whether it was, as Prigozhin himself would say, more directed at military top rest, including Sergei Shoigu, who, by the way, nobody has heard from since this all began. You seem certain that this is a man turning on his former patron. I want to be very clear about something. <laughs> nobody knows exactly what right. just happened. I don't think Vladimir Putin knows exactly what just happened. I don't know that Prigozhin knows everything that just happened. He may have been testing to see whether other people joined with him. Um, the fact that there is so much uncertainty, I think, is the point. The point is that Putin has tried to create this aura of invincibility inside of Russia. Yeah. Whether or not Prigozhin actually thought that he was going to take power and sit in the Kremlin, it, it almost doesn't matter. Because what this has done is it has shown the cracks in the facade mm -hmm. of Vladimir Putin's in, in, invincibility. Uh, and, and that's why we're in kind of a new state here where all the players in Russia are now wondering, hey, how much control does Putin really have? Yeah. This system that he has set up, again, of these different fiefdoms and these different players jockeying for influence, jockeying for his favor, nobody quite knows what happens to that system now. And so even though we don't necessarily know exactly what Prigozhin's endgame was, was this, was this him lashing out, uh, we still are, are in a new era in Russian politics, I think. Yeah, Masha, in terms of the view from Russia, and what Russian citizens make of all of this. <laughs> how are you understanding this moment and, and how much fear there should be in Russia that a wounded Putin is a more dangerous Putin? Well, first of all, let's be perfectly clear. Nobody knows what Russian citizens think about all of this, including Russian citizens, right? You can't have um, opinions in a totalitarian society, right? You, don't, you never have enough information. You never have enough ability to talk with other people uh, in order to be able to form opinions, in order to be able to form politics. Um, I, I'm going to disagree with them a little bit. I don't think this was a rebellion directed at Putin. I think Prigozhin... Uh, sincerely and pointedly held to the narrative that if Putin is making bad decisions, it's because he's ill-informed. And he was going to march with his men through all of Russia and in his inimitable way, inform Putin so that he would then fire the minister of defense and, and create order. He found himself, once he started shooting down Russian army helicopters, he found himself in a coup that he didn't mean to start. It was sort of a de facto coup without being a de jure coup. Um, and that, I think, allowed uh, Lukashenko to negotiate with him. But I will agree with Ben that this is the biggest opening that we have seen in the sense that for 23 years, there's been one political actor in Russia. Certainly there's only, and, and that political actor is the person who, who controls the armed forces. Now it's not so clear. There's room for somebody else to uh, to act violently. There's some there's room for somebody else to wield an army and there's room for somebody else else to act politically. And that is a huge change. We have not seen this. Do you, Masa, do you have I, I just wonder as a, a Russian, is your feeling in this moment one of guarded optimism? Is it is it trepidation? I, I just because so much is so uncertain, I wonder how you are emotionally sort of looking toward the immediate future. Um, I would not call anything that I'm feeling optimism. Uh, you know, Prigozhin is a monster, 
Uh, he is uh, anybody who you know latches onto his crit- criticism of the um, of the pretenses on, w- uh, on which the war in Ukraine was unleashed and sees you know some glimmer of liberalism there is dead wrong. Prigozhin is um, certainly you know just just an absolutely monstrous, uh, violent figure who we know has killed many people who have so much as criticized him in the media. Right. Um, and at the same time, you know, I've been waiting for years for an end to the Putin regime. And if the Putin regime ends with something other than the death of Vladimir Putin, it will be something like this. It will be some ridiculous, perhaps unintended coup that ultimately succeeds. This is the biggest crack in Putin's power so far. So, you know, I think for Russia, it's really, you know, I would be very hard pressed to say that it's good news. Uh, but but it is a crack in Putin's power. But I think, you know, the immediate aftermath is going to be a crackdown. There's no way that Putin is not going to react to this uh, by cracking down even further, primarily on Russians' access to information. Ben, you have written um, so brilliantly about uh, opposition figures fighting against autocrats. And I wonder what you think this moment signals for opposition figures like Alexei Navalny, who is currently in prison in Russia, and whether, you know, you're looking at this moment with any dose of optimism or expectation even. Uh, I do agree with Masha, that, uh, who's also written brilliantly about Russian opposition figures, that it's, it's hard to feel optimistic given the nature of Russian society right now. Um, I think what this shows, though, is if you do talk to a Navalny, right, um, what they will always say is that Putin's not permanent. Someday he's going to be gone, right, whether that's in one year or five years or ten years, whether that's because he is killed or dies or whether that's because someone removes him. And I think what this does signal is to the Russian people, despite all their confusion, despite the fact that they don't have all the information, that this is not permanent. Mm -hmm. And the reason I do think that ultimately this is a challenge to Putin's authority, no matter what Prigozhin's near-term intentions were, is that Putin, who's tried to kind of lay low, he doesn't come out and narrate the war that much, he had to go on television and say somebody is engaged in a mutiny. Yeah. Right? That was something that all Russians saw. And so for the first time, Russians are seeing their own leader having to say, one of my guys, one of my guys who's been a trusted lieutenant of mine for a long time is engaged in armed mutiny against me. The whole world saw that, too. The Chinese saw that. Mm -hmm. All the countries that have been sitting on the fence in this war saw that. And the Russian opposition did indeed see that. And and again, Masha's written brilliantly about this. Part of what a totalitarian leader wants to do is make people think nothing will ever change. It's not even worth believing that anything can change. Well, for at least 24 hours, the Russian people were led to believe maybe something is changing, whether they liked it or not. And I think that does signal to people that Russia's political future is a part of the war in Ukraine, that it's not just Ukraine's future that is at stake in this war. It is Vladimir Putin's regime, and it is an existential issue for them, just as it is for the Ukrainian people. And that's the new world that we're in right now. Yeah, the fact that you're saying the word Russia and the word change in the same sentence is not something that's happened in a very long time, right? Masha Gessen, thank you so much for joining us this evening. Ben Rhodes, I'm going to ask you to stick around. I need you the entire hour, please. Up next, what about the war in Ukraine? Wagner mercenaries have been key to Russia's fighting forces. So what does Putin do now? We are going to go live to Kiev. And how can and should the West respond? We're going to speak to a member of the House Armed Services Committee coming up. Stay with us.
The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. You can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. As Wagner mercenary troops inched closer to Moscow yesterday during a short-lived armed rebellion, fighting raged on in Ukraine. Today, Ukrainian authorities reported five dead and more than a dozen, a dozen injured in overnight airstrikes on Kyiv. Emergency workers there spent the day sifting through the rubble to search for people who might be trapped beneath the debris. Kyiv was, Kyiv was one of several Ukrainian cities hit by airstrikes yesterday. Ukrainian officials say Russian missiles also targeted Dnipro, Kharkiv and Kherson, both wounding and killing people on the ground. Ukraine is now entering its 17th month of war, battling to maintain independence from Russian invaders. And while the country continues to fight with an onslaught of Russian attacks, Ukraine is pressing forward to retake its land. Ukraine's deputy defense minister says Ukrainian troops launched a multi-prong offensive in the Russian-controlled Donetsk region, including around Bakhmut, which was captured last month in the longest battle of the war to date by the Wagner Group. The same group behind this weekend's armed rebellion devastated the city of Bakhmut, reportedly torturing soldiers and killing civilians, including children. Now that Wagner forces have largely left Bakhmut and focused instead on revolting against Russian leadership, what does that mean for Ukraine's war strategy? Joining us now from Kyiv is NBC News foreign correspondent Raf Sanchez. Raf, thanks for joining us tonight. Um, we know that uh, Ukrainian President Zelensky said today he spoke with President Biden about the course of hostilities and the processes taking place in Russia. Can you tell us anything? Think more about that call and and sort of how people are reading that statement. Yeah, Alex. So for starters, it was one of several calls between Kiev and Washington over the last 48 hours. The president spoke, but also uh, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin spoke to his Ukrainian counterpart earlier today. And General Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, spoke yesterday to his Ukrainian counterparts. So these are conversations at all levels of government, president to president, military to military, intelligence agency to intelligence agency. In terms of the conversation between Biden and Zelensky, Zelensky called it a positive and inspiring conversation. He thanked President Biden for American military supplies, especially, Alex, the Patriot missile batteries, which are defending the skies of Kiev and other cities from the missile strikes like the one you mentioned, which struck in the early hours of Saturday morning, killing five people here. They also talked about what is going on inside of Russia. Neither readout gave a whole lot of detail about what was discussed, but it's been interesting, Alex, watching how the two presidents have dealt with this differently. 
Zelensky over the weekend has been very vocal, talking a lot about what's happening inside Russia, taunting Vladimir Putin for disappearing from Moscow, in his words. As you know, Alex, Zelensky is from the east of Ukraine. Russian is his native language. And he was directly addressing Russian soldiers in Russian, saying, listen, they, your leaders don't care about you. They're fighting amongst themselves while you're being asked to fight and die in the trenches here. That kind of taunting, that kind of bravado, not really an option for President Biden, whether he likes it or not. Vladimir Putin is a peer of his as a leader of another nuclear armed nation. And it's been very noticeable. President Biden, who's been at Camp David over the weekend, huddling with his national security officials, has not appeared in front of the cameras. He is not offering any kind of running commentary about what is going on inside of Russia. And I think in the Biden administration, they are very cautious not to be seen to be cheering for instability inside a country that opones about half of the world's nuclear warheads, not to be seen to be cheering for the Wagner Mercenary Group, which is a group that is sanctioned by the United States. So both presidents watching what's happening in Russia very closely, but taking two quite different approaches. Ralph Alex. Sanchez, thank you for your time tonight, Ralph. Please get some sleep. You have been, you have been up all night and we deeply appreciate it. Joining us now is Michael McFall, former United States ambassador to Russia and, of course, current MSNBC international affairs analyst. Mike, thanks for being with us tonight. Um, I, sure. I just how are you if you're advising uh, President Zelensky in this moment, looking at a potentially wounded, metaphorically speaking, Vladimir Putin, what would you advise him in this in this crisis moment? I think what he's saying to those Russian soldiers is exactly right. And you know who else was saying that to those Russian soldiers? Prigozhin. I think this idea of undermining the morale of the soldiers on the battlefield, not those in Moscow, not their their commanders, but to those soldiers to say, hey, wait a minute, why are you here? Your commanders back home are fighting amongst each other. Your top commanders, General Gerasimov, uh, didn't have the, the guts to take on these rebels, these traitors, but he wants you to die here. I think that kind of messaging is very important right now, and that's exactly what I would be doing if I were President Zelensky. Mike, do you make anything of the fact that we haven't seen or heard from the top two military commanders, Shoigu or Gerasimov, who you just mentioned? Uh, too early to tell. Of course, there's tons of speculation out there that that was part of the deal, uh, that they would be removed and returned from Prigozhin going into exile. I'll believe it when I see it. Uh, I, I'm skeptical that that will happen. Maybe Putin might remove them sometime, but not immediately, because if he did that, that would be, uh, you know, a concession to Prigozhin. He's already made incredible concessions to a guy he just called a traitor hours before. I can't imagine he would want to dig deeper into that into that hole that he's in right now. Yeah. And yeah, someone who knows Putin uh, as a political animal, I mean, what is your assessment about how gravely this damages his leadership in Russia? Oh, I think it's big damage. Uh, they're going to try to spin it, that the, everything was under control, that they had this negotiation. But let's face it, when you have armed forces getting ready to fight each other, Russians are all watching this on Telegram, right? This is not being censored out. Maybe it will, like Masha Gessen said early in, early in your program. Maybe that's what's to come next. But they all watch this. In any way you spin it, it makes Putin look weak. Now, he has a way to recover. 
and I think how he deals with Prigozhin might be some hints to that. I would be very surprised if he allowed Prigozhin to become a political actor, to continue to put messages up on Telegram. I would not even be surprised sometime down the road if something happened to Prigozhin physically. Well, and he also can try to do something on the battlefield. But right now, he looks pretty weak in front of everybody inside Russia. And, and just in terms of, as, as our NBC uh, reporter was just outlining, there are two different communication strategies coming from Ukraine and Washington, right? Biden has very clearly not wanted to get in front of the cameras on this for a number of reasons. Zelensky is very, you know, publicly talking about his conversations with the West. As a former U.S. ambassador, I mean, wh what guidance would you offer Biden in this moment as he has to navigate various factions in a pretty complicated and, and sort of shifting diplomatic moment to be euphemistic about it? I'd say three things. One, don't talk at all about what happened inside Russia. That's good. That's wise. You don't want to get into that. Two, take the message of Putin's weakness to a lot of the fence sitters. Xi Jinping, first and foremost, say quietly in diplomatic channels, is this really the guy that you want to be standing with? Uh, you know, he is a weak leader and chaos in Russia will continue as long as the war in Ukraine continues. Maybe it's time for you to lean on your buddy Vladimir Putin to shut this all down. And then three, we don't talk, you shouldn't talk about it, but for, you know, on your program and, and in many conversations throughout this war, we've always talked about uh, escalation and Putin's in the corner, rat in the corner, he needs to save his face. We can't do this, we can't do that because he'll seen that, seen that as an escalatory step. Well, Putin played a game of chicken with Prigozhin over the weekend, and you know what? He didn't double down, he didn't escalate, he capitulated. And I think that is a really important message for everyone to understand that, yes, we have to worry about escalation, most certainly when it comes to nuclear weapons. But there's an alternative way to end this war, and that's for Putin to feel like he's losing. And so rather than pulling back and, and this kind of incremental support for Zelensky, I would hope that President Biden would look at this event and double down in his support. We shall see what happens. Michael McFall, always great to speak with you. Thank you for your time and Thanks expertise, as always. Sure. Up next, they call him Putin's chef. But how did Prigozhin go from a hot dog stand to trying to march on Moscow. That is next. And it turns out that the U.S. may have known about Prigozhin's plans before Putin did. We will have more on that. Stay with us. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews. But now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. How did this man, 
Yevgeny Prigozhin go from serving Russian President Vladimir Putin his dinner, that is him serving him his dinner, to thinking he was powerful enough to lead a military rebellion. Well, Prigozhin spent almost the entirety of the 1980s in prison for robbery and theft. And by the time he got out in the early 1990s, Russia was in transition. It was becoming an entirely new country. While other oligarchs were taking over commodity industries like oil and aluminum, Prigozhin focused mainly on food. He went from selling hot dogs to running grocery stores to opening high-end restaurants, restaurants that served world leaders like Vladimir Putin and George W. Bush, seen right there. And it was that role, being Putin's chef, that got Mr. Prigozhin his fortune. Putin gave Prigozhin generous state-backed loans so Prigozhin could open factories that for more than a decade now have made school lunches for almost all of the public schools in Moscow. That gave way to more government contracts until eventually Prigozhin wasn't just feeding Russia's school children, but he was feeding its military as well. And those very lucrative government contracts did not come for free. Putin expected more than just food in return for the government's money. The first time Russia invaded Ukraine in 2014, Russian-backed separatists in eastern Ukraine had a mysteriously well-trained group backing them. We now know that was the first appearance of the Wagner Group, Yevgeny Prigozhin's private mercenary army. In exchange for all of those generous government contracts, Prigozhin gave Putin the gift of plausible deniability, a private army that technically isn't connected to the Russian government or Putin, but one that could still achieve Putin's military goals abroad. Now, private armies are illegal in Russia, but the Wagner Group literally recruits via billboards that are put up around the country. That is one of them. The group is known for its work in Syria, fighting in the civil war there, even attacking U.S. forces. Wagner is known for its work in about half a dozen countries in Africa, doing everything from fighting to securing mines and oil fields to training local insurgent groups that support, that support Russia. The Wagner Group is also known for its gross human rights abuses, like killing civilians by the hundreds and burying them in mass graves and brutally executing deserters in its own ranks. Now, Prigozhin did Putin's dirty work off the battlefield as well as on it. Do you remember, for example, the Internet Research Agency? It was the Russian troll farm that was run out of this completely nondescript office building down in St. Petersburg. It used fake accounts to, like, like that one to spread disinformation to try to swing the 2016 presidential election for Donald Trump. Again, this wasn't Vladimir Putin directly, but it was certainly what Vladimir Putin wanted. And again, it was Yevgeny Prigozhin giving Vladimir Putin plausible deniability. Prigozhin was basically one of Putin's fixers. So when Putin needed help in his war of aggression in Ukraine, he once again turned to Yevgeny Prigozhin and his private army. The Wagner Group fought some of the toughest battles of the war so far on behalf of Russia. The group suffered incredible casualties, and Prigozhin himself became an outspoken critic of how Putin's generals were running this war in Ukraine. So on some level, Prigozhin's anger here towards Russian military leadership, even towards Putin himself, to some degree, that makes sense the motivation behind leading this armed rebellion. But how, but how does someone who with such an intimate knowledge of Russia's military and intelligence apparatus, how does he think he had what it took to revolt against Putin's government on a Friday and then just turn around and hightail it in the other direction on a Saturday?
What made Yevgeny Prigozhin change his mind? Here with us again is Ben Rhodes, former Deputy National Security Advisor to President Obama. Ben, I, I know you don't know conclusively, but do you have kind of a suspicion about what happened here? He's 134 miles outside of Moscow. He knows how it all works, the systems, military intelligence otherwise. And he turns around and is now exiled to Belarus. Well, I, I think there are a few things we have to keep in mind here. First of all, not totally unprecedented for people who've been in prison to make a run at the throne in Russia, right? Uh, Lenin comes <laughs> okay. to mind, right? Yes, right. Second of all, Prigozhin really came to a degree of prestige in the last several years. He was the tip of the spear for a lot of Vladimir Putin's top priorities, right? The election interference, the war in Syria, getting influence and access to natural resources in Africa. He must have felt his own prestige going up. He wasn't just an oligarch. He was a guy with his own army. Now, the irony of this is part of the reason that Putin has a cutout like this, yes, is deniability. It's also because he doesn't want his own military and intelligence services to get too strong on their own mm -hmm. so that they wouldn't take a shot at him. But I think... Oh, well, look what happened. Exactly. And so I think Prigozhin felt like he had this growing prestige. But then in the war, what happened? The military, he thought, was kind of hanging him out to dry, mm -hmm. right? He thought that they were letting his men get chewed up in a meat grinder in places like Bakhmut, that they were starving and that they saw an opportunity, people like Shoigu, the minister of defense, to weaken him. So I think he felt compelled to, to stand up for himself. Hey, I'm a big player. I delivered you this in Syria. I delivered all these things. I delivered the election interference. And now I'm being hung out to dry on the battlefield. And so if I don't stand up now and make a run at this, uh, I'm ultimately going to get chewed up and all my guys are going to get chewed up in Ukraine uh, by these incompetent and corrupt people in the Ministry of Defense. And so I think it's both his beef with the Ministry of Defense and people like Shoigu and also this sense that he had of some invincibility. Wagner has had uh, something of a winning streak in recent years uh, and, and he took a shot. All I will say is that we have some NBC News reporting that Wagner Group uh, mercenaries are not happy about Prigozhin turning tail and feel like they've been betrayed by him. So when you talk about a rock in a hard place, either stay on the battlefield and risk going to the meat grinder or potentially betray, betray your troops as you try and save your own life. Yes. That is where Prigozhin is. A rock a hard place in Belarus. Ben, don't leave. Please stay with us. We have more coming up next, including what the troubles in Russia mean for the United States. We're going to get the view from Congress. Stay with us. <clears throat> this weekend's events have exposed the fractures within Putin's Russia, but they have also illustrated something else, the relative strength of U.S. intelligence. Although Wagner chief Yevgeny Prigozhin did not call for an armed uprising until Friday, senior Biden administration officials were briefed days earlier on Wednesday about intelligence indicating that Prigozhin was considering a military rebellion. By Thursday, intelligence officials had also informed a small group of House and Senate leaders known as the Gang of Eight. A source tells NBC News that U.S. spy agencies observed the Wagner group amassing forces and weapons and detected other indications that Prigozhin was poised to make a move. As The New York Times reports, the information shows that the United States was aware of impending events in Russia, similar to how intelligence agencies had warned in late 2021 that Putin was planning to invade Ukraine. But unlike with the initial invasion, when U.S. officials declassified the intelligence and then released it to try to deter Putin from invading, intelligence agencies this time kept silent about Mr. Prigozhin's plans. Let's bring into the conversation Arizona Democratic Congressman Ruben Gallego. He sits on the Armed Services Committee and is an Iraq war veteran. Congressman Gallego, thank you for joining me this evening. I, I think a lot of us were fairly shocked to hear this reporting that Congress 
new at select group of members in Congress. But nonetheless, the U.S. Congress had a sense that this might be coming maybe even presumably before Vladimir Putin. What was your reaction to hearing about the congressional element of all of this? Look, I'm not surprised. Uh, number one, through all public sources, you could tell that there was a rift happening between the Wagner Group and the Ministry of Defense, and that had been going on for quite a while. And you saw that really going on for between the first couple months of the battle on Bakhmut. So this was something that I think was kind of building up. Number two, because we have intelligence, doesn't necessarily mean that we want to share intelligence, because you have to actually understand what the end goal of this is at the end of the day. Had we shared this intelligence widely like we did prior to the invasion of Ukraine, uh, I think there would have been some element of the Russian media and other allies who would have like tried to spin this as being somehow a uh, operation done by the CIA. So allowing this to kind of take its nature, I think, was actually a very smart move uh, by uh, the CIA, by our intelligence services, by the president, as well as the as the Gang of Eight. Now there are other times where you do share and tell which we saw prior to the Ukraine invasion, something that a lot of us were very much involved with. I actually traveled to Ukraine with a congressional delegation to talk to uh, the Ukrainian government prior to the invasion, making sure they understood how serious the intel was. Uh, and that was designed to basically put the coalition together to stop an invasion. Uh, and, you know, again, so there's sometimes where you'll have to use intel properly. And I think at this point, the White House used intel in the proper way. Um, ben, as someone who understands the NSA and what happens in the Situation Room and all the sort of mechanics of uh, foreign policy and intelligence gathering, is it possible, as the, White House, the Wall Street Journal reports, that the U.S. intelligence community would know more about what sort of was on Vladimir Putin's horizon than the Kremlin? I, I have to think that the Kremlin and the Russian Ministry of Defense had some indication of what was going on, right? This is all in a crowded battle space. There's a lot of intelligence collections happening. I'm sure that the Ukrainian intelligence services uh, had some idea of what was happening. As Congressman Geiger said, this has been kind of building for, for a while. Uh, I think, though, that the U.S. intelligence community, in addition to Congress, Congressman uh, Geiger's good point that they don't want to be seen to be like, you know, playing into Russian narrative that the West is somehow behind some uprising, some military rebellion. We still don't know exactly what the end game here was. Yeah. And you don't want to go out and narrate events when you actually don't know where those events are going. Now, before the war, we knew Russia was going to invade. We knew what we were looking at and where it was leading. Here, we might have seen all kinds of indications that Wagner was about to make a play. But I don't think that they likely understood exactly what the end state was mm -hmm. here. Uh, and so I think the right thing to do is, you know, inform the right people, get ready. You saw a lot of canceled travel. Uh, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, uh, uh, he canceled a trip to the Middle East. Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor, canceled a trip to Europe. Clearly, they wanted to be in the situation, monitoring this, watching this, consulting with the Ukrainians, consulting with allies. But like everybody else, uh, I, don't know I don't know that they knew exactly where this was going to lead. And just to talk about how they got this intelligence, it sounds like, at least from the reporting that we have, these aren't necessarily high-level sources, that the military sources that they're getting this intelligence from. It could be lower-level Level recruits within the Russian army or even the Wagner group who don't have encrypted communications, who aren't using the same sort of technology to uh, to mask their their messages and their communications. That's that right. right. There's, there's several ways here. One, you're just kind of watching overhead. What are these fighters doing? Where are they massing? Two, in a military space, there's a lot of people on the phone and not all of them are doing it in a secure way. And so there's a vast trove of information that is being collected by the Americans and the Ukrainians uh, in terms of communication between 
between people, right? And then there are human sources. I'm sure that the U.S., the Ukrainians certainly probably have people on the other side of those front lines who are reporting back what's happening. So there's a huge influx of information, uh, and it's how do you evaluate that information? What do you do with it? And clearly, they evaluated that something was about to happen. Uh, they decided, you know what? This is an internal issue in Russia. We're not going to be the narrator on this one in the same way that we were before the war, because we don't know exactly where this is leading. Congressman, you know, given the the weakness that we're seeing uh, from Putin and the, there's a lot of analysis about what this court portend in terms of his future, do you think this changes any of the political dynamics inside of Congress vis-a-vis the war in Ukraine? Republicans, your colleagues, have not been particularly supportive of the war in recent months. They have been strangely, weirdly, questionably supportive of Vladimir Putin in a way. I mean, do, does this change? Do you force? Is this a signal moment in, in terms of those dynamics? Well, look, I, look, I think the, the most important message we can send is that uh, Putin is weak and Russia is weak. The most uh, the, the thing they want the most is for us to lose interest in Ukraine and for Russia to be able to wait us out. Now we know that Russia actually is on a smaller timetable, that Putin is basically hanging on by a thread. He is no longer the strongest man in Russia. Uh, you know, a third world rate power in uh, Belarus was had to negotiate a peace treaty for him. And at the end of the day, right now, we actually don't know who's in charge of Russia. So one of the arguments that we can all make to our Republican friends who are being more hesitant about funding Ukraine is that we are doing very well. What we know right now is that Ukraine is more in solidarity in terms of their sovereignty than Russia. So what we need to do is double down, give Ukraine the the weapons and the backing they need to finish this war, and they will get their sovereignty back and at the same time defeat Russia and potentially push Putin out. Those are two win-wins at the same time. And this argument that Russia is a strong and a stronger position when it comes to Ukraine is no longer valid. And so for those people that are actually potentially on the sidelines, on the Republican side, saying that we have to start you know, tailoring, uh, uh, tampering down our support of this uh, war, now the argument is no longer valid. We can win this war. Ukraine can win this war. Russia yeah. can be defeated. And Putin is not fully in control. Congressman Ruben Gallego, thank you very much for your time this evening. We'll have more of our special coverage of the crisis in Russia when we return after break. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. 